I've never told this story to anyone. It took me a moment or two to realise what I'd just agreed to. The first mistake that I ever made in my life. She said, I'm leaving Broome now, I'm coming to meet you. The memory lasted forever. Wanted young dynamic people to join our dog sledding family. All I know is that. It was like a shockwave going through my body. The story of Peter Falconio is embedded in the Australian psyche. The case had a profound effect on many, and while it seemed like scenes from a movie script, unfortunately it was not. This incident consumed conversation, and I really, really think it altered our expectations of the freedoms that should actually come with road trips. I'm Jess Ong, and you're listening to a podcast from Spun, a live storytelling night in Darwin. Now, Colleen Gwynn was the chief investigator on the Falconio case, and she exclusively told her story at a Spun event two years ago. Just a little heads up, this story got a lot of interest when it first aired, so if you happen to be a big podcast listener, you might have heard bits of this story elsewhere. So January 2004, uh, career break for me. I went to Port Moresby to uh, have a bit of escapism in a really safe place. And um, I worked for AusAid for a year and um, came back to Alice Springs and my first day on the job. Uh, I'd, apparently I'd been seen the night before running along the, uh, the Todd and a young constable came up and said, Hey Sarge, uh, saw you running last night. Wouldn't run along there. It's uh, not called the permanent crime scene for nothing. And uh, I said, oh, look, I've just, um, I've just spent a year in Port Moresby where there's uh, stabbings and murders and carjacks and uh, corruption and black magic. And uh, I actually used to run with a, an armed guard who carried a fully automatic firearm. And uh, I used to live in a room with a rape gate that used to malfunction most days. So I'd always be late for work. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I feel pretty safe here. It was kind of like a sleepy hollow compared to where I'd been. So, uh, but thanks, Constable. Um, Thanks for the advice. Um, so, uh, yeah, look, Alice Springs to me was uh, the contrast, you know, the biggest complaint by a constable was the aircon wasn't working his car and I said, get the bloody hell back out there and start locking some people up. Um, so fast forward six months, I'm at home, get a call. Hey, uh, boss, you've got to come to work. Um, a bloke's, uh, bloke's missing and his missus reckons that uh, someone's um, shot him and she's all right, so... Uh, so I turn up to work and um, confronted with what is now known as the Falconio case. That started a series of events in Alice Springs. Um, the so-called Sleepy Hollow was inundated with world media, with the UK tabloids, and you can understand they are a pretty vicious bunch. And um, as that progressed, I really wanted to distance myself from anything to do with that case because uh, my memory is uh, Joanne Lees with Cheeky Monkey on her breasts and um, a guy talking about the case who had the biggest ears you've ever seen. I call him Commander Big Ears. So there was nothing about what the Northern Territory Police were doing at that time that was actually very flattering or made us look like a, a group of people that knew what they were doing. So what I did is um, try to distance myself in a very small town as much as I could from anything to do with what is known as the Falconio case. Then one night I got a phone call from the, the new commissioner that said... Um, uh, the case is yours. And um, really, from my perspective, that marked the beginning of the end of my police career. 
the reaction for me was um, quite interesting. Initially, it was um, it's a bit like when you go to a movies, you buy a big bag of lollies and you're all happy and you're there, and um, you know it's equivalent to about 30 teaspoons of sugar. You down them in about three minutes, and it's just blood sugar levels are high. You're on a high, and all of a sudden you take a big low. So that's what it was like for me. I was on that high. What a chance! What an opportunity this is for me. And all of a sudden, that hangover, that sugar hangover hit. I, I was, uh, I couldn't sleep. I was dry. I just felt like someone had uh, given me a carton of beer, but taken um, 12 out of it. So you know, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling that confident. So what do I do to, to deal with those um, anxieties is I work day and night and I read every little piece of that case I could. And um, two, three in the morning, reading, reading, reading. So I knew what to do. I had a plan. The blood sugar had gone down. The anxiety levels had gone down. So what I had to do is I went and observed the team who was working on this investigation and it was pretty clear if I was going to plan for a game... There was no coach, there was no captain. In fact, there was very little good players. There was no um, collegiality. They didn't actually really care about the victim, the case, the family in the UK. It was a bit of a mess, really. So what I did is I observed the individuals and there was three people that stood out for me. There was the old stoled cop that had probably lived in Alice Springs all his life. He, he went at his own pace. He was smart, he was methodical but he believed that something bad had occurred. The second person was a young detective who'd worked in Alice Springs, and she wanted a challenge. She was tired of dealing with drug and alcohol-induced violent crime. She wanted something different, and she wanted to stay. The third person, who would end up being best on ground, was a, um, a intel officer who was OCD like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> if she wanted to get her legs waxed in December, she'd plan for it in January. So she, um, <laughs> oh, she's going to hear this, I've just realised that. So I've picked the team, I've got the team, we're not going to be the wooden spoons, we're going to make the finals. Had to go to the scenes, had to go to the ground, have a look, see where the water was. What I did is I got someone to drop me off where Joanne Lees sat behind that salt bush, all alone, and I sat there and I got them to drive away. And I've never been more terrified in my life, never been more vulnerable. I wanted to cry. It was the most scary feeling. Um, I could hear my own heartbeat and imagine that. I can actually ring someone to pick me up. She couldn't do that. That's when it felt really real for me. I understood what this woman had been through and it was scary. The next um, stage was to go and meet the survivor and that's what she was. Go and meet Joanne go to the UK, bummer, but anyway, I had to go. Um, yeah, not first class. It was. So it was um, off to the UK to meet Joanne Lees, and uh, this was a woman that had no trust. Um, she thought we were a bunch of dickheads that had no clue how to solve this crime. She was pretty right. The only cop show I ever watched in my life was The Bill. I love The Bill. So I was going to the UK, I was like, bang. <laughs> I walked into the Hove police station in Brighton and the bloke at the front desk said, morning, Gov, cup of tea? <laughs> I said, thanks, mate, one sugar. <laughs> that then led to a 12-hour interview with Joanne where um, 
there was nothing wrong with Joanne's evidence. It was just poor investigations. She was a very, very, she was an amazing witness. There was tears, there was laughter, and we just spent the most amazing time together. Her recollection of the events, and if I put myself back under that salt bush, I, I just don't know how she remembered things like the little grey flicks in this man's hair was unbelievable, what her recollection of what occurred. We spent this special time together and we've, she renewed her confidence in the Northern Territory Police and she was so happy that she gave me a rock from Brighton Beach. She really went out of way, spent a lot of money. <laughs> Still got that stupid rock. <laughs> My next trip was to go up north, up to Huddersfield and meet the Falconio family. This is something I was really anxious about. I'd had some contact with them. I walked in there, I had a, uh, a detailed map of the Northern Territory and I sat there with the family and again I drank about 30 cups of tea and went to the toilet about every four minutes. <laughs> Joan Falconio was so distraught, she couldn't get out of the bed to talk to me. It took her an hour, she heard the Aussie accent and thought, I've got to go and meet this woman. She came out and she said to me, the grief has just taken hold of me, I want to die. And after a while, the optimism that I had, and I said, we, we're going to find out who did this. We'll find out who did it. And she hugged me, and we had a moment, and that bond has never left me. And when I left Huddersfield that day, the pressure on me and the weight on me was enormous. The hope that they had and the way they looked at me is that I was the one that was going to change this for them. And if I couldn't find Peter, they wanted the person responsible found and convicted. Come back to Australia six months later, there was a breakthrough. We had someone tell us, I know who did that. It was a guy called Bradley John Murdoch. But the information he gave us was so good that we knew we had our first really good lead. We had two and a half thousand persons of interest at that time. We had one we thought was probably the right one. The same month, we learnt that there was a falling out between Bradley Murdoch and his brother Gary. So we pounced and we got a sample for DNA analysis. We now know who touched her on her shirt. We now know who touched the gear stick in the combi. And we now know who made the manacles. It was Bradley John Murdoch. I think I drank the other half of the, the um, carton that night. <laughs> the feeling that I had at that time, I don't know if I can ever explain. Bradley Murdoch knew we were onto him. He panicked and he started to escape. And this man knows the bush like no other. We had a window of opportunity to find him and we knew that it was now a hunt for Bradley Murdoch. If he disappeared, we wouldn't have found him. He was an expert in disguise and he was expert in not being found. We now knew that we just had to find this man and they did. He was found in South Australia after committing atrocious crimes on a mother and her daughter. My next stage was meeting this man in Yatla prison. This is something I'd dreamed of for over three years and once I'd seen pictures of Bradley Murdoch, I knew this guy was the devil. We arrived at the Yatla prison. My heart is beating like you wouldn't believe. I finally got to meet this man. We'd gone through three sets of secure doors. The media were everywhere over the outside the prison. 
And then I met him and he seemed like my father. There was a remarkable resemblance between my father, who was the most intimidating and violent man who I've ever had anything to do with. And he made my upbringing a living nightmare. My past flashed before me. And at the same time, he was playing a game of intimidation with me. He stood over me. He's this tall, intimidating figure. And I was so small under his frame. I wanted to cry, but I wasn't going to let him beat me. And he was yelling at me, it's not me in your fucking video. I got no fucking teeth. And he was spitting on my face. And I was never going to take a backward step. And I didn't. I played the game and I won. He took the backward step. The same time, I looked to my right to the door of the cell and there was five little meerkats, which were the prison officers, looking in at the game, <laughs> watching with interest. It was like having front seats at the MCG on a grand final day. <laughs> we talk about connections. I've got to tell you about a connection. I should have put it on my wrong, the other wrist. That's a hair tie. This would convict Bradley John Murdoch. Here you go. I feel like a stripper. <laughs> <coughs> the selection of my team paid off. The OCD individual was so meticulous. All of Bradley Murdoch's belongings arrived in Darwin. There would have been thousands of things inside that, that Toyota and his trailer. And I suggested I give her a hand. She told me to go away and drink beer. And that I was no help to her. She wanted to go through every detail. What she found amongst Bradley Murdoch's belongings was that hair tie that I've just thrown into the crowd with jubilation. It was the hair tie that got taken from Joanne when she struggled to survive and keep her life. He may not even known how significant that was, but he had it wrapped around his holster inside his belongings. I think it was a trophy, but no one will ever know. When it was presented in evidence, he recoiled back and he wouldn't touch it. And you could see that he knew when we presented that in evidence that that was it. That was the nail in the coffin, so to speak. When Bradley John Murdoch was convicted, I was sitting in the front row and when the jury provided their decision, I didn't know how to feel. I wanted to cry, I wanted to laugh, I felt numb. And I looked to my left and there was Joanne Falconio and she mouthed, thank you, to me. And I had to remove myself from the courtroom and find somewhere where I could just cry and cry and cry. I feel like crying now. That was the moment that would mark the end of my police career. I would never equal such a challenge. It's like being best on ground and consecutive grand finals. There's nothing left after that. Thank you. Colleen is now the NT Children's Commissioner here in Darwin, and she first told her story at our event where the theme was connections. Now, Colleen's story signals the end of our first ever podcast season, but hold on to your socks, we're coming back. We're just taking a few weeks' break to pull together some more amazing stories from people up here in the NT, and we'll be back in just a few weeks so you won't even notice. This podcast episode featured sound editing by Rosa Ellen, music by Lajlo Hassani, story production by Johanna Bell, with funding support from Darwin International Airport. My name's Jess Ong. Thanks for listening.